seated. John's Gospel, chapter 1 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis 2, Revelation, and uh, we come here to chapter 1 of the Gospel according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. For all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right or authority to become children of God to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but of the, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So tonight we begin the Gospel according to John, uh, the Apostle John, written by uh, the Apostle John, and, uh, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The same apostle is the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the New Testament, and the Revelation, as we're studying on uh, the Sunday mornings. The Gospel of John is unique among all uh, uh, of the four uh, Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke that precede it, and they are known as the synoptic Gospels, synoptic meaning uh, see together, because they cover very much the same kind of territory in terms of describing Jesus, describing his teaching, uh, describing his life. But when we come to the Gospel of John, I think it can be jaw-dropping to realize that fully 90% of what is in John's Gospel is unique to this Gospel. It is not found in any of the other Gospels. Now, each of the Gospels are a record of Jesus' life, his ministry, his teaching, his death, his burial, uh, and his uh, resurrection. But each one of them emphasizes those things concerning Jesus in a slightly uh, different way. And so people can ask, why the four Gospels? Why didn't God just do one Gospel and uh, one kind of linear thing in which every event and everything just goes right down the line and it would run like a historical textbook. Why didn't he uh, do it that way? Well, probably a lot of reasons that I don't know, but he's far more creative than that. And, uh, and it gives us an insight into Jesus that we wouldn't otherwise have if we didn't have the four Gospels. If somebody comes and... Uh, was to take a uh, look at your face. And if they were to look at your face from straight on, they would describe it a certain way. 
If they were to uh, look at your face from uh, the right-hand side, they would describe it in a certain way. If they did it from the left-hand side, they would describe it in a certain way. And it would take all three of those perspectives then to give us an accurate perspective of your face. And that's what the Gospels do. They all look at Jesus in a slightly different way, emphasize a slightly different thing. The Gospel according to uh, Matthew uh, emphasizes the fact that he is uh, the king, that he is the king of the Jews. Uh, Mark's Gospel emphasizes uh, the servant aspect of Jesus. Luke's Gospel emphasizes his humanity. And John's Gospel emphasizes uh, his, uh, his deity. And so each one of them shows us something a little bit uh, different. If you put them all together, uh, you might encapsulate it as behold your king, behold your servant, uh, behold the man, and behold your God. And that's what the Gospels all complement uh, one another in doing that. Now, we will never understand. We will understand the Gospel according to John on some level, no matter what, as we would read through it. But we will never be able to fully understand or to fully appreciate uh, this gospel uh, without understanding the purpose of the Holy Spirit in writing the book. And the purpose he gives us is found at the very end, nearly at the conclusion of the book in John chapter 20, uh, verse 30. You might turn to it if you, uh, and see it with your own eyes. I could just be making things up, up here. But John's Gospel, chapter 20, here is the purpose for the writing of the book. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so all of the teachings, all of the miracles that constitute of the gospel according to John. They're intended to bring a person to a place of faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah and as their uh, Savior. And then as a result of that faith, as John says, then to have everlasting uh, life. So John isn't um, like sometimes a an evangelist can be or others can be where or other religious systems where a gun is kind of put to somebody's head and you're going to believe in Jesus uh, or else. Uh, all he does is he says, I've written by the inspiration of the Spirit, written this gospel to inform you related to him. And he does so confident in the fact that if someone comes to this gospel and is uh, honest and open-minded related to Jesus, that it will bring that person uh, to faith. We are never ever afraid of the conclusion that somebody might come, uh, conclusions they might come to concerning Jesus uh, uh, from the gospels and certainly not from uh, the gospel of uh, of John. And so he's very, very upfront. Sometimes, you know, if you've ever been in like a uh, sales presentation or some kind of other presentation and somebody's kind of going on and on and you can wonder, what in the world are they trying to communicate to me? Uh, what are they trying to do to me? And sometimes you get a sense that somebody's trying to do something 
uh, to us. And when that happens, we put our guard up now. And now we're not able to listen carefully because we think they're going to try and pull a a fast one uh, over on us. And John doesn't want there to be any of that kind of anxiety about this at all. He says, up front, this is what this is all about. This is what God put this gospel in the Bible to accomplish in in a human uh, life. The method that he accomplishes all of this by is, first of all, beginning the uh, gospel with a very, very uh, specific and detailed uh, theological description of Jesus. And I just read those 14 verses that constitute the introduction uh, to the gospel. And then John shifts from that and he starts to build the remainder of the book around seven miracles of Jesus and seven I am statements. He takes those things and he says, I'm going to build the case for Jesus Christ upon seven miracles that I've chosen and, uh, by the Spirit and, and, uh, and uh, seven I am statements. And so uh, the miracles that are chosen here by the Holy Spirit are miracles that only could be uh, done uh, by God and uh, and uh, the uh, and statements that could only be true of the Messiah and of God. Now, in this introduction that we're going to begin to look at here tonight, in verses one through fourteen, you say, "Begin." What are you, what are you talking about? Listen, I'm not going to rush through the Gospel of John like you guys had me rushing through the Old Testament. <laughs> So these 14 verses, they lay down this foundation for who Jesus was and, and uh, what he is in order that we might really be able to appreciate all that's going to follow in the gospel. And these 14 verses constitute some of the, the, the densest, uh, most theological and beautiful descriptions of Jesus in, in, in the entire Bible. But it's important not to look at these verses as just like, okay, this is just mere you know, theological uh, truth and this description of Jesus that the Holy Spirit gives us here. It's completely inconsequential as it relates to our own personal relationship uh, with Him. No, we cannot have the relationship with Jesus Christ that the Father wants us to have without understanding these things uh, uh, about Him. I think a good way to maybe uh, illustrate it is this. Let's say you have a friend that you uh, go out to breakfast with them once a week at a coffee shop uh, in town. And, uh, and so every week you meet and there's a, a fellowship and there's a relationship that develops as a result of this. And you know this person simply is a friend. Uh, you enjoy their company. They enjoy uh, your company. They feel the same way about you. And then one day a friend of yours, another friend, spots you in that coffee shop. Uh, and as you're leaving that coffee shop, the friend pulls you aside and then whispers to you, do you know who that is? And you say, yes, he's my friend or she's my friend that I have breakfast with once a week in this coffee shop. And then they inform you that this friend of yours is a Nobel Peace Prize winner in chemistry. 
uh, or that, uh, that he or she is a professional athlete or a world-renowned uh, entertainer or a, an author or a world-renowned surgeon. Well, just that knowledge now is going to make me, uh, it's going to produce a greater appreciation for what I have in this relationship with this person than I ever had uh, before. And an appreciation that wasn't there moments before I learned this uh, about, my, about my friend. And in the same way, perhaps I think oftentimes we know Jesus simply as our Savior and as our friend, and all of that is wonderful, but that's the extent of it. And we think we couldn't love him any more than we do, couldn't appreciate him any more than we do, and then we're informed that he is fully God and fully man, Uh, that he is God the Son, that he is the creator of everything that's been created, that he is self-existent, and he is eternal, and he is all-powerful. And as a result of that understanding of him, our appreciation uh, concerning him, and the awe that we feel at having a relationship with him now goes off of the graph. And we pinch ourselves at being able to know such a person and such a God, and that such a God knows me and takes an interest uh, in, in us. And so there's that appreciation that we then gain that we would have not been Uh, wouldn't have unless we were informed of it if we only knew him as our savior and as our friend. And I think, let's think about the fact that this is Jesus. This is the one who came into the world to die for our forgiveness. And uh, this is who is, uh, 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 in addition to being our savior and our friend, this is who is that savior and that friend. In verse one, Here we are already. We're only 14 minutes in. And here we are. We're already in verse 1. Screaming through this thing. Man. So God begins by, as John does here, by describing Jesus as the Word. We know from verse 14 that he is talking about Jesus uh, when he refers uh, to Jesus as the Word. He makes that clear in verse 14. Now, because it's interesting, John uh, begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word. He doesn't say, in the beginning was Jesus. He doesn't say, in the beginning was the Messiah, or in the beginning was the Son of God. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. He said, in the beginning was the Word. So he must be trying to communicate something significant to us by confusing us a little bit in in verse 1 until we get clarity about who he's talking about in verse 14. Uh, He's trying to communicate something very important and very specific to us. And so John is. The word that John uses here for word is the Greek word uh, logos. And uh, the word logos, when it's applied to uh, Jesus, just trying to figure out all of the implications of it can just uh, blow up your mind. But, but to keep it simple, and, and I have to keep it simple, and, and I don't think we'll lose too much by keeping it simple here, 
uh, logos means word, and you think about what is a word. Someone has said a word is a unit of speech by which we express ourselves to others. A word is more than a sound. A word is more than a grunt. Uh, A word is something that we use with the intention of communicating. When we communicate, we don't walk up to one another in the fellowship hall and begin to say whatever kind of syllables come to our mind because they won't be able to understand what's going on. When we use words, we use them with the intention of communicating uh, something. And so we string the words together, not just to talk, but in order to make a statement, in order to communicate something to others. And John is telling us that Jesus, as the Word, doesn't, hasn't merely come into the world to communicate to us solely through His speaking, uh, just as a messenger to deliver a, a verbal message to us, but that His entire life His nature, his being is intended to communicate to us uh, that his entire life is a message. And what is the message of his life? That he is, as the Son of God, what God the Father is like. In fact, what the entire Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, is like. And that when we examine the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus, we're not only learning what He is like, but we are also learning what God the Father is like as well. Now, the Apostle Paul is very, very helpful to us in this regard when he wrote uh, his letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He described Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. That is, He is the very nature and the character of God the Father has been uh, perfectly revealed to us in Jesus in the Son. It is through Jesus that we're best able to know what the Father is uh, like. And the reason that this is huge for us as human beings and certainly huge for us as Christians is encapsulated when the Apostle Paul describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. He describes God the Father as invisible. And so the problem that we face as human beings and as Christians in trying to get to fully know God the Father, what He's like, the problem we face is He is invisible. He is spirit. And because He is spirit, it's hard for physical creatures like us to know uh, uh, what He's like, to understand uh, what it is that He's like on on a practical level. The Apostle John uh, wrote later in this chapter, in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Uh, Later in the Gospel, according to John, chapter 4, verse 24, uh, Jesus declares, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and spirit. In truth. And so Jesus, being uh, the Son of God, being God the Son Himself, He provides us with the ultimate answer to the great question uh, that everyone ought to have, and every Christian certainly has what is God like? He is like Jesus. 
You remember when uh, Philip, later on again in the gospel according to John, Philip speaks to uh, Jesus in the presence of the rest of the apostles, and he said, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be sufficient for us. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? And again, there in chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten of the Father who is in the bosom, uh, uh, only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared Him. So Jesus is the exact representation and revelation of the Father. Now you notice that it says, in the beginning was the, uh, the word. It does not say, in the beginning was a word. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the is singular. Jesus is not one of many who are able to reveal to us the nature of God the Father. He's not one of many religious figures that have come on the scene in human history and, and they've done virtually the same thing. He is the only one, is the Son of God, who has the ability uh, to give us this revelation. In the beginning was the Word. Only He is uniquely qualified to do so. Now you notice second in verse 1, John declares to us what Jesus was uh, and is in the sense that he is described here as being uh, eternal. He is described here as being uh, self-existent. We're told, in the beginning was the Word. And so when the heavens and the earth were, cre were created, as is described and recorded in Genesis 1-1, Jesus already was. He already existed. In other words, before the beginning began, He already existed in eternity. That's your Savior. That's your friend. He already existed before anything that is around us came into existence. And so Jesus is not created. He didn't come into existence 2,000 years ago at the uh, uh, supernatural uh, uh, impartation of, of life in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, this miracle of the Holy Spirit, the conception that occurred. He didn't come into existence in the moment of His birth. You and I come into existence at the moment of conception, but His existence stretches all the way back into an infinite eternity. He never began. He has always existed. He is as eternal as God the Father. And Jesus communicated this very thing concerning Himself in His great high priestly prayer, which we'll get to in John chapter 17 halfway through the tribulation period uh, up in heaven. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Where Jesus said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. He is eternal. He is self-existent. And that is the one who is our Savior and our friend. 
John goes on and he tells us further in verse 2 that he, that is Jesus, was with God. He was in the beginning with God. The word with there literally means face to face. And it's intended to communicate to us the intimacy or the closeness of the relationships within the Godhead between Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit. And here it speaks of the intimacy of relationship between the Father and the the Son and and the intimacy of relationship that they have enjoyed uh, from eternity. I think it's important for us to understand this love for one another within the Godhead in order to fully appreciate uh, the sacrifice that was uh, required of both the Father and the Son uh, in order that you and I might be saved as Christians and so that anyone in the world might be saved and become a, a, a Christian. And here you have the Father uh, sending His Son into the world to die in order to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins. And here you have uh, Jesus being willing to come into the world to lose, not to lose, but for there to be a a disturbance of that face-to-face, some mysterious, indescribable disturbance of that face-to-face in order to provide us with salvation. You remember Jesus, when he was on the cross, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken, forsaken me? And some forsaking, some indescribable, unknowable forsaking took place within the Godhead between the Father and the Son while he bore our sins upon the cross. Something of that face-to-face intimacy was lost at that particular point in time within the Godhead. Imagine that within the eternal Godhead that's shaking right into the core of it in order that we might be saved. And the Father was willing to endure it and Jesus was willing to endure it that you and I might be saved. And, and the loss of that face-to-face intimacy there while Jesus bore our cross, uh, our sins on the cross. And so possessing Jesus, uh, uh, this kind of a love for us. And so, yes, he's our Savior. Yes, he's our, our, our friend. But you think about the greatness of a love that is willing uh, to uh, encounter that in the relationship with God the Father in order for us to be saved. Additionally, that the word was, uh, was with God, as we're told there in verse 2, it invalidates what is known as the oneness doctrine uh, in what is, uh, professes to be Christianity. It's cultic or the Jesus-only doctrine, the idea that there is only one God and, uh, and that uh, the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, that they cannot manifest themselves uh, all at the same time. For instance, as Jesus was being baptized, remember to begin his public ministry, there is Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him like a dove. The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, hear ye him. You have the active presence of the entirety of the Godhead 
there on that scene. But the oneness uh, people say, no, uh, God can only be manifest through one of the persons at a time. And so God was, the Father was manifesting Himself in the Old Testament. Jesus was manifesting the Godhead in His uh, 33 and a half years of His life on the earth. The Holy Spirit is representing uh, the, the, the Godhead beyond that. Or as some of them believe that Jesus is the sole uh, expression of the entire Godhead. He is the one and the only one that the Godhead is expressed through. All of that is bogus. Because here you have the Son with the Father. And they are not all one in the way that they present it. Now you notice in a little bit further in, in, uh, in verse 1 that uh, John tells us that the Word was God. So he's declaring Jesus to be God. He's declaring Jesus uh, to be uh, divine. So not only was he with God, but now we're told that he was God, or that he is God. You cannot make a stronger statement to declare the deity uh, of Jesus Christ than the one that is made here in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the, and so teaching very clearly uh, the deity of Jesus Christ. The verse is so damaging, what is said here, so damaging to those who do not believe uh, in uh, the deity of Christ, like the Jehovah Witnesses don't believe in the deity of Christ. They believe that Jesus uh, was an angel and principally uh, Michael the archangel, so he's a created being. So what do they do with this verse? So what they do with this verse is they take, if you see a New World Translation, I advise that you don't. Uh, but if you do, their New World Translation goes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, uh, and, and, uh, and the Word was God. And what they do is they put that final God in ver verse 1, they lowercase it, and then they say, and the Word was a God. They insert an A there, and there is no A in those manuscripts. It doesn't exist. So, uh, but that's the violence that they're willing to do to the Scriptures to hold on to an unbiblical view related to Jesus. They go lowercase on it uh, in referring to Jesus as God because then they'll say, well, Jesus is God, but He's a lowercase God because He's God in the sense that uh, God calls the judges who represented him in the priests in the Old Testament in their, uh, in their judgments through the Word of God. He called them gods. But, but there, you cannot support that at all. You cannot. You're not, you're not fixing your problems. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. If he is before anything began, you can't make him a lowercase g and a mere judge. You just can't get around uh, what the passage is, uh, is, is saying. Now, some of you, and I don't want to uh, try and uh, read body language or to get into anybody's mind, but you say, listen, I just, I just wanted you to tell me that Jesus loves me tonight. And 
let me go home. And, and then you're doing this whole thing. Every Christian is intended to know the Bible, not as a, a source of devotional thoughts in my life, but to know the Bible, like we're talking about here tonight. Who is going to witness to the Mormons? The JWs? No Christians. Who is going to witness to the Jehovah Witnesses? Who's going to witness to the Jews as a foundation for our faith without knowing these things? And so the importance of it. So the Jehovah Witness comes up on the step and you say, well, I'm born again. I don't need anything that you're selling and all. And I think he was God. And, and uh, I believe that's what the Bible says. And they say, well, well, show me. Where does it say that? Oh, I don't know. That preacher. That, I go to that church down there and he says it is. And so I take that. But I, I, to save my life, I couldn't show you one verse in the Bible for what it is that I, I believe and the one that I've entrusted my entire eternity to. No, no. That's a very, very subpar uh, understanding of the scripture and a subpar view of, of Christianity and uh, what it means to be a Christian. And so here he is uh, being told that he is uh, divine. Uh, the fascinating thing, one of the fascinating things about this is that Jesus' claim to be divine, to be the Son of God, is the foundation for a massive amount of rejection of Jesus as Messiah and the Savior of the world. It is almost singly the reason why the Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah was because of his claim to be the Son of God. And they picked up stones to stone him, and, and they said, we're not going to stone you uh, for any of these reasons. We're going to stone you because you being a man, make yourself to be God. That was the, the affront to them. And it's the affront that Jesus is to the Jewish people uh, yet, yet today. And uh, despite the fact that the Old Testament scriptures plainly declared that when the Messiah came, he would be uh, divine. Let me give you a couple of verses, and uh, I'll give them to you right here in July. And uh, normally we don't read these until December. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born. That's the human side of Jesus' birth, the earth perspective side. And then the heaven perspective side, uh, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so when Jesus was born into the world, he wasn't just a child, but he was a son. And the, uh, the very son of God. And uh, not just a child, uh, but the child will be, as Isaiah said, uh, mighty God. And so he was and so he is. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, another uh, Christmas favorite. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Speaking of Messiah, Emmanuel means God with us. The very name that would be given uh, to uh, Jesus, that he is God with us. That was the expectation of the Old Testament prophets. In Jeremiah chapter 23, 
verse 5 and 6. We get a more obscure verse uh, at this, uh, this point. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. And so Jeremiah prophesied that when the Messiah came into the world, he would be of the bloodline of David and that he would be divine. Psalm 2 speaks repeatedly of Messiah being uh, a, a king and being the son of God. Here's an obscure one that is very, very powerful. You'll find very few people have an answer for this one. In, uh, in, in terms of being exposed to it. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. Uh, who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? So have you descended into heaven or, or uh, 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 descended? No, this is unique to God. Uh, when's the last time you gathered the wind in your fists? Oh, just a quick show of hands here, quick. Everybody's being honest tonight. No, it's unique to God. Who has bound the waters in a garment? And who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If you know. And again, in the Old Testament, God's speaking of the Messiah being his son and thus uh, divine. And so it was God in human flesh who died on the cross for our sins and and uh, was born into uh, the world in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Now, let's just spend a moment talking about the necessity of uh, Jesus' uh, deity and of his uh, humanity as it relates to um, our salvation. The necessity of Jesus... So you say, some people say, well, why, why did he have to be born into the world in human flesh? Why, why was that, that so important? Why didn't he just come down like uh, the USS Enterprise or something, just drop down in this awesome display? Why did he come in, 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 in the necessity of his humanity? And it's very simple. Uh, without becoming a man, he would not have been able to die. And if he hadn't been able to die, then he wouldn't be able to be the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. Concerning the necessity of his deity, lots of people in the world struggle a little bit about why it's important for us to recognize Jesus as divine. Why, why do we have to recognize him as God in, in human flesh? in order for him to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. Isn't it enough that I believe that he's a great prophet, that he's a great teacher, he's a great uh, example, he was a great miracle worker? And the answer to all of those questions is no. Because if that's all he was, then our sin problem would remain unresolved. Because a Savior who is just merely a good person or a great teacher or a great example isn't qualified to provide mankind with the forgiveness of sins. It is because Jesus is divine that he is also sinless. And it is the sinlessness of Jesus that's essential to our salvation. 
because a sinner cannot be a sinner's uh, savior. He would need a savior for himself in the same way that a drowning person cannot save another drowning person. They're both in the same uh, impossible uh, situation. And it was Jesus' sinlessness that qualified him to be the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, to be the lamb without blemish and without spot. And if you take away his deity, you take away his sinlessness, and if you take away his sinlessness, you're left with a Savior who cannot save uh, anyone. And so it's no mistake that Jesus came into the world exactly as he did. You have, and maybe you, maybe you or I were in just the same kind of a place before we became a Christian. And, but you hear people say all of the time, uh, and they have ideas about Christianity or ideas about Jesus, and they feel that they can improve upon him with their various uh, opinions. Well, I don't believe him to be what that says about him. I think he's more like this. But when you get down into who he is precisely, you see how perfectly, uh, how perfect he is and uniquely perfect for the forgiveness of our sins. I, every time I think about this, and, and there was a commercial when I was growing up, and uh, I forget what it was about. I don't know if it was uh, margarine or laundry detergent, but the line was, uh, uh, it, um, it's not, uh, not smart to fool with Mother Nature. What's the right word there? It's not what? It's not to fool with... Not, not right to fool... Uh, can you come up here? And so, you can't fool Mother Nature. Yeah, and, I, and um, uh, so what was I saying? A anyway, uh, but... Uh, I always think about this whole deal where all of these attempts to improve and all of them simply mar him in a way that he could never be uh, who he is uh, to, uh, to us. Now, we can't leave um, verses 1 and 2 without noticing that they uh, describe a plurality within the Godhead, the triunity, they are a foundation for of the Trinity and the teaching of the Trinity in the Bible. The Bible teaches concerning God that there's one God and He is manifested in three persons, three divine persons, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, admittedly, that is a great mystery to us. So people try to describe the Trinity as, uh, in terms of water, there is liquid, uh, there is gas, there is ice and egg, you've got the shell, you've got the yolk, you've got the white. But all of these illustrations break down. There's a lot of mystery that's involved in this. And, and if the Apostle Paul declares the triunity of God to be a mystery, that is something we can only understand so far and then it blows our brains up, then I'm willing to accept it's going to be a mystery to me as well, the theologian that he was. And Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, 
and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. You say, what are you talking about, Paul? And here it is. God was manifested in the flesh, speaking of Jesus, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. The mystery of Jesus' part in that trinity in the Godhead. Now, to appreciate what's being taught here concerning God the Father and Jesus in this regard, I think it's uh, necessary to understand the first in the beginning of the Bible. And that's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You might turn to it because I'm inclined to think that when John writes his gospel, he starts it with in the beginning because he's giving us a nod back to uh, Genesis 1 in understanding uh, all of this. So if you're in Genesis chapter 1, first book in the Bible, and you notice down in verse 26, it plainly declares, then God said, let us, plural, Make man in our plural, like image, according to our plural likeness. And so that raises the question then, who is this us and our and our that God is talking to and that God is talking about at the very beginning of, uh, of, of, of the Bible? Well, most uh, Jewish literature that I've read uh, on the verse, and of course the Jews deny the deity of Christ and the Trinity, they explain that what's happening there in verses 26 and 27 is you've got a conversation that is going on uh, between uh, God the Father, uh, a God of the Bible, and he's talking to angels. And they do this because they don't want to see any support in the Old Testament for uh, the deity of Christ or the deity of the Holy Spirit or the triunity or trinity uh, of God. There's one group uh, that wrote this to try and explain uh, verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1 and see if this is satisfactory uh, to you. This is how they attempt to deal with it. One possible reason for the use of the plural on the part of God is to manifest his humility. God addresses himself to the angels and says to them, let us make man in our image. It's not that he invites their help, but as a matter of modesty and courtesy, uh, God associates them with the creation of man. This teaches us that a great man should act humbly and consult with those lower than him. That's complete nonsense. That's not what that passage is talking uh, about at all in describing uh, God and the conversation within the Godhead. And, and to give that kind of explanation, it accuses God uh, of being a deceiver, of a false humility, and, and pretending that he is not greater than the angels when he is infinitely greater than the angels and has no problem being that and receiving their worship and their, their adoration, and they have no problem acknowledging him in, in that, that way. And so God cannot be speaking to angels in verse 26, because you read the very next verse, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And so clearly man was not created in the image of God and angels, but created in the image of God. And God wants to, he declares it twice in verse 27, just so no one will do any monkey business uh, over this. And, uh, and three times if you, if you include him making the same statement in verse 26. Later in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, the Holy Spirit declares the same thing again. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So clearly you've got a discussion here, a conversation within the Godhead in, in verse 26. Well, somebody might argue related to that, and uh, certainly a Jewish person would. What about the great Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6? Uh, doesn't the, the, it, it declare that there's only one God? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the Bible does teach, the Shema does teach that uh, there is uh, one God. And no Bible-believing Christian would ever declare that there's more than one God. We believe exactly what the Bible teaches, and that is there is one God manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the interesting thing in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Hebrew word that is used there for one is the Hebrew word echad. And the word echad means one, but it speaks of a compound unity. There is another Hebrew word that God could have used that means an absolute one, an indivisible one, uh, yached. And if God had used that word in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, all talk of the triunity of God would have been eliminated. But God doesn't use the second word of an absolute one. He uses the word echad in, in describing God as one. Additionally, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the Hebrew word that is used for God there is the word Elohim. And it's fascinating because in the Hebrew, the name for God in the singular is El. And Elohim is a plural name for God. When you want to make something plural in the Hebrew, you add I am to it. And so it speaks of the fact that God is one and yet somehow uh, he is also plural. It's also significant that although the name Elohim is in plural form, uh, in Genesis chapter uh, 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 1 verse 1, it is constantly accompanied by verbs and, uh, and Elohim is plural in form. It's constantly accompanied by verbs and adjectives in the singular. In singular. So, for instance, in Genesis 1.1, the verb create is singular, and, and so it is throughout this chapter. It is, it, it is a, a single God, a one God, but, but a, a, a one uh, who uh, is, uh, is plural somehow uh, that is doing all of the creation of that chapter. And it reinforces two truths about God. They seem to be contradictory, but they're not. That God is somehow plural and yet one. So, 
In Genesis 1-1, God describes himself as a plural one. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God records a conversation that involves multiple persons within the Godhead. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, when he gives the great Shema to the Jews in order to reinforce the fact that he is one, he is careful to use a word that speaks of a compound unity. And in all of this, even all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the Bible, God began to lay a foundation for what he knew he would continue to develop in the revelation of his word, that there is only one God, but that he is triune, made up of a triunity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You say, why spend all of, uh, of, of the time uh, on, on uh, this tonight? Because, again, there's a whole world of people that reject Christianity on the basis of our belief in the triunity of God, the deity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jews do, Muslims do, Jehovah Witnesses do, others do, but the evidence for the Trinity and the evidence for Jesus' claim to be divine, to be one with the Father, begins not only in the first chapter of the Bible, but it begins in the very first verse uh, of the Bible. So again, we see the perfection of this salvation that has been delivered to us. So you have somebody like me on a Sunday morning and and uh, I'm going to invite people to put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness uh, of their sins. And so I do. And, uh, and then people come to know the Lord. And the Holy Spirit draws people a, a lot of, of different ways. And so I declare all of that uh, uh, to people and to come forward, put your faith in Jesus and receive uh, everlasting life. And then we can think that that's all there is to this salvation. But, but that invitation to man to be saved is built upon a substructure that is jaw-dropping in its beauty about God and what it says about the Father, what it says about the Holy Spirit, what it says about Jesus, the foundation uh, that allows us to freely and simply say, what we say to people in, in this regard. And so the salvation, when you think about the salvation, one of the things that it does and, and how it wows us is when we look at it and realize uh, this is something, uh, this is a perfect match for our need as sinners. Nothing has been missed. I mean, the perfection of the salvation is amazing uh, to view in the Scripture. And the perfection of Jesus to be qualified to be our Savior. And so, yes, we know Him as Savior. We know Him as friend. We'll always want to know Him as Savior and as friend. And those are the things that ultimately rise to the top even after we've known the Lord, not just at the beginning, but after walking with Him for 40 years. But in all of it, there is the realization that this Savior and this friend is all of that too.
before there was a beginning, he existed. And he is my Savior. And he is my friend. Not at my initiation, but at his initiation. And then it makes us realize, wow, that he would even have breakfast with me. Or that he would even be willing to save me. That it makes me appreciate him even more than I might otherwise appreciate uh, him and appreciate the salvation that he has provided. Well, we'll stop there and we'll get into verse 3 next week. And we'll pick up the pace a little bit. But I I wanted these things to be built um, uh, into our lives. I am concerned. I am concerned with... um, I'm a Bible teacher. That's what I am. Uh, If I am not that, I am nothing else. So I understand that this kind of stuff fascinates me more than maybe some people and and all. Um, But when people come in, for instance, on a Sunday morning into the the, uh, sanctuary and you begin to teach the Word and they're gone in five minutes. I don't blame you for being gone after ten minutes. But you've got to bring enough to stay awake for five minutes. You have to care enough to know God that much. And I do fear that we're being dumbed down to where there is the place for devotionals and, the, and, and devotional thought. And this is Jesus. We're going to get into all of those things as we go through the gospel according uh, to John. I'm not putting those things down at all. And so we have as a part of our life as Christians, we have the reading of the Scriptures every day, part of our relationship with the Lord. Uh, We will use devotionals in our life, which just takes a simple little thought about God, His heart toward us, what He's like, in order to kind of set our minds on that for the rest of the day. So there's Bible reading, there's a devotional side, but the great lost art today is Bible study is Bible study, really digging down into the Scriptures and learning these kind of things and knowing them so that then a person can come to us and ask for the reason and the foundation behind our faith in Jesus Christ and we can give an answer. So we get Christmas time comes and we say, well, and it's a nice time to share uh, Jesus with people. He's the reason for the season and all. And say, you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The average pagan, I use the term affectionately, uh, will respond by saying, why in the world would I put my trust in Jesus' forgiveness for forgiveness than any of the other seven billion people on the face of the planet? And then that's the moment of truth where I now have to be able to answer that question for them. And the answer to that question only comes through knowing the Bible in a way that involves study. Well, you think to yourself perhaps here, thinks, now he's trying to justify the whole night up there. He's just, there's a defensive mechanism. He's being passive aggressive now with us. And... Uh, but I'm not. 
And so I, 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 I know I can, I can go off the deep end on, on some of this kind of stuff. But I didn't do that uh, tonight, just in case you're, you're wondering. But a lot of it is born out of that concern so that other people will know. And how will they know except we tell them? And how can we tell them unless we know? So this is our Savior. This is who we have fellowship with day in and day out. And the intent of all of this in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, is to produce fresh and anew within us an absolute awe over the privilege of that relationship. And if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, we're going to be up in front immediately after the service. We'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to become a follower of Jesus Christ today, to enter into the relationship with God that you have been created for. And it's all there for the asking, and it's all there for the receiving. For the, everyone in the room, if you need prayer for anything in your life, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time in your word this evening. Thank you for every revelation that you give us of not only our Savior, but the Savior that you sent to us. We're humbled by your love. We're humbled by his love. We're humbled by your plan of salvation. We see how thorough and how majestic your salvation is. It had to be one way. It had to be uh, a, as perfect as we are messed up. And we thank you that there was a way of salvation. And we thank you, Father, this, for making the sacrifice that was required of you in order to do that. And Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that was involved in your part for us to know you as Savior and as friend and to enjoy the life that we enjoy today. And we thank you in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.